Talk Radio 191 FM podcast. Mr. Speaker. All right, it is time for politics here on Radio 191 FM, the Otago Museum Breakfast Show. This morning I have Jeffrey Miller in studio and John Moore phoning in from a um, a location unknown. Morena to you both. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning, John. All right, uh, let's get straight into the swing of the things. Uh, if you didn't know already, um, and it seems like some people may not know, uh, local body elections are on right now. The final week of the campaign for DCC, uh, take a regional council, health boards and community board elections. Uh, a new mayor is guaranteed uh, with Dave Cull uh, deciding not to restand this time around. Uh, Jeffrey, who are the front runners this year? The cycle. Right. Well, unlike the general elections, when we have a lot of polling to help us out, we don't have any official polls to tell us what voters are thinking. So some people might say that's actually quite refreshing uh, to just leave it up to the voters. The the only really real indicator we've got is a, a survey that the ODT ran on its website a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and, of course, this isn't a scientific poll of, of, of any kind, but... Uh, it does show the level of activists uh, or lack level of, of enthusiasm by the activists um, and it showed um, uh, the Green Party candidate Aaron Hawkins and then independent candidate Lee Vandivis, um being the two front runners. Uh, they got about 30% each in that uh, ODT survey and I think that confirms what most people probably think at, at this point. I mean they're the two most well-known names mm-hmm. uh, standing um, but there are 14 candidates in total and you know there are all kinds of people standing for election so um, you know those are the two but uh, you know, even on this uh, on the self-selecting uh, poll online they only got together 60% of the vote so I mean 40% of people are, you know prefer another candidate at least according to this this online survey which as I said isn't on is not a scientific poll. Um, but local elections are you know, so much about name recognition and mm. so this leaves you with Aaron Hawkins of course well known um, you know, and uh, you know, used to sit in your chair I believe That's right. Um, and, and Lee Vandivis who's been a councillor since 2004 I think he had one break of three years when he wasn't re-elected um, but other than that he's been there for a good 15 years now and gets his name in the paper quite a lot <laughs> he does indeed and those two are poles apart too yeah, very, very much so. I mean, Hawkins is essentially the establishment candidate. I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't call himself that, but he is, you know, supporting the status quo. He points to his achievements on council um, with the cycleways uh, being one of them, with the uh, courthouse uh, that was restored and they got uh, central government to back the refurbishment of that, of the hospital rebuild, um, and all of these kinds of things. Uh, and he's talking about public transport and expanding that, including a free uh, inner city uh, public transport loop, um, and it supports the cycleways and so on. Vandivis is, is is saying, you know, pretty much burn the house down to all of this stuff. Um, no cycleways, um, you know, and you know he's, he's against the bridge uh, that's being planned for the waterfront and. Um, you know, he's very heavy on the he's heavily emphasising the debt mm. that the uh, DCC has run up, and so uh, you know he wrote in his you know mail out to voters, you know if you vote 
uh, whether you vote, don't vote or don't bother, you'll decide to need a new direction. If you vote for anyone else or do nothing, you'll get more of the same, more debt, more cycleways, and ever higher rates. So, uh, you know, if you look at his posters, he's talking about more parking and all of these things. So he's very much the antithesis of of Aaron Hawkins. And so you've got a nice match up between these two. And then you've got a whole lot of other candidates um, as well who we shouldn't forget. Um, uh, one of the most prominent in terms of advertising is Jules Radage. Uh, he's a property investor, uh, owns a lot of commercial properties or is a uh, part owner of a lot of commercial properties in Dunedin, as I understand, including the Golden Centre. Um, he spent up large, he's on record as spending about $20,000 mm-hmm. um, uh, on advertising. Um, and Christine Gary is a local board member. Uh, she spent also quite a lot on advertising in the newspapers and on buses and so on. So, you know, there's a few others as well who, you know, obviously putting in a serious effort. And of course, you know, just because you're not spending large on, on advertising doesn't mean you're not serious. But, you know, in the end, if you, you've got to get your name out there. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, these candidates, of course, have got an advantage. The spending cap for each candidate is up to $55,000, which is quite a lot of money. I yes. mean, yes. that's well over the, the average wage, really. So, you know, it does favour candidates who've got the money or have got the backers. Um, to to put in. Interesting. Hey, John, have we come to grips with the single transferable vote system? No, I don't. I've seen people debating online, people with uh, university degrees who, you know, people who are obsessed with politics, who who have arguments over uh, if you, um, say, for example, if you're anti a particular candidate, do you just leave them off? Or do you actually rank them at the bottom of the list? It's the most effective way to make sure they don't get in. Um, I guess people have understand the general idea that you're ranking candidates in terms of preference. So, um, but how that is then calculated afterwards is, I think, is, is incredibly confusing. Um, it, it, it isn't straightforward. Like, if, if you put someone at second or third for mayor, what does it exactly mean? Uh, um, and you can have the case where someone um, uh, has, has, hasn't got the majority of first preferences, but let's say they, they got the largest numbers of second preference that could actually lead them to winning the race. Um, I'm not a big uh, fan of STV, but I understand why it's used in, in cases where you don't actually have um, political party standing in local body elections, uh, and and um, and because you don't have a runoff. So uh, an alternative would be to say that uh, all right, all the candidates stand, and then the top two. Uh, you have another vote that the top two candidates for mayor have a runoff. You know the type of thing you have to say with the um, presidential race in France. Um, yeah, but uh, people say uh, would argue that STV does lead to uh, more diversity um, and uh, um, is is a more proportional system than just doing a first past the post type uh, runoff. All right, um, let's look at the major cha- uh, issues, I guess. Um, from my mind, the major issues, transport, uh, debt levels, rates, climate change has been a big one, um, with actually uh, a large percentage of the candidates coming out talking about climate change, uh, talking about South Dunedin uh, and their individual plans for those type of things. But if you, I mean, council, uh, the mayor is the the head of account, the council, it's, he's they are the mouthpiece um, but they have to work with the councillors 
um, and you can't really get anything done without getting the numbers to back you. So, I mean, when people like Lee uh, are coming out and saying uh, more car parks, um, when people like Aaron are coming out and saying more cycleways, um, can they really deliver on these things in the council? You know, does, does the mayor have a, enough of uh, a sway to, to deliver on their promises, Jeff? Well, I mean, the mayor does determine the, the direction, if you like, and does have does have cut through in the media. Um, being mayor does give you that that status above the other councillors. Uh, you know, in, in you know, at least in terms of you know attention, mm. um, but not in terms of votes. You know, the mayor just has one vote like any other councillor. So you are going to need to get the support of your colleagues. And if Vandevers came in, and as and as mayor, you know, he says, "I want more parking. I want this. I want that." You know, he's going to have to convince his colleagues to to support him on that, or enough of them, because ultimately you need to get a majority to s- support this. And mm-hmm. so Vandevers would probably uh, have trouble unless you know there are more candidates elected this time around who share his thinking or at least are willing to be convinced by Vandevers thinking. There are some. Uh, there are some right-leaning, more right-leaning candidates. Andrew Wiley is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim O'Malley is also more sympathetic to Vandevers than some of the others. So, you know, I mean, these things are always subject to change and it's possible that the makeup of the council will be more favourable to va- the Vandevers uh, after the election. Who knows? Mm. It's interesting you mentioned the other two two others that are running for um, mayor because these all these candidates are also running for council right. um, for, for the most part. So and, and because they've got a higher profile uh, because they're running for mayor, they've probably got a higher chance of getting on council. Right, and and that's really the main incentive. Dunedin used to have a ward system like uh, other councils do still uh, in other parts of the country, but these were abolished uh, some years ago, and that means that you essentially have just got one big super ward, and. Uh, you know, previously we used to elect councillors just in the, in, in the individual wards, uh, so it reduced the number in each. Um, mm. You know, and essentially these were uh, the ward system was a bit like electorates after general elections. So just you know, your part of Dunedin uh, chose a councillor to represent it. Um, but this was abolished. This was seen as sort of artificial boundaries. So it was abolished to have one big super ward. And the downside to that is there's so many. Um, that if you just uh, want to be on council but not mayor, you, you get almost no attention at all. And so the the way that seems to uh, that a lot of candidates seem to be taking is is you know I'll vote for me for mayor and by the way vote for me for council. And they really use the publicity they get by being included in the mayoral race, where you get invited to meetings, debates, you get profiles in the newspaper, and so on. Um, you you know you get a bit more attention. You might get a bit more than. Uh, name recognition, mm. and you might l- at least get on council. I think that's the, the theory, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, name recognition is everything in this game of local body, isn't it? I mean, it's really looking you up and finding out what your policies right. are. Right, exactly, exactly. Which is a shame. Sure. Which is a shame. Um, just quickly on uh, on this before we move on to the next issue, um, just the Greens and Labour uh, have skin in the game, really, when it comes to uh, political parties. Um, you've got, of course, Aaron. Uh, running in Dunedin Greens. There's a couple of other candidates for Dunedin Greens in ORC and in um, the council, uh, plus um, Marion Ward. Was it Marion Street, sorry? Uh, running for ORC as well. And Marion Hobbs. Oh, Hobbs, that's right. Well, Marion yes, Street. Yeah, under yeah. the Labour ticket. That's right, that's right. But that's really about it. Um, why Why are they staying out of, of this kind of game? There's been a long culture in New Zealand, political culture, where... Um, 
in terms of local body elections, it's not seen as a done thing for um, political parties to, to run a ticket, uh, especially um, um, political parties that have, uh, uh, have got um, MPs in Parliament and the central government. Part of it's to do with the idea that, that council should operate as a cohesive whole uh, and, and you don't want the divisions of political parties uh, coming in and interfering with that with that chance for councillors and the mayor to, to, to work as a collective. The counter-argument to that is, well, it's still politics. Politics is really about a clash and contest of ideas uh, and, and that's why you, you should actually want political parties involved in local body elections and that you have political parties standing on a clear platform with clear policies uh, and trying to win votes on the basis of those policies, whereas if we lock in a lot of the candidates and their billboards around Dunedin, that they're making very bland statements and, and uh, pushing out platitudes such, such as wanting a, um, a strong city, uh, I'm a candidate who listens, blah, 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 you know, things that are, are kind of empty and meaningless and, and, and very hard to actually rate a candidate based on, on those mere platitudes. Um, yeah, so uh, th- that's sort of the situation at the moment, why we really don't have political parties um, um, actually involved in these campaigns to a large degree. Mm, it's, you know, I mean, you look at the American system where you're either a Democrat or a Republican and you've either got a Democrat um, mayor or a Republican mayor, pretty much. I'm mm. sure there's probably some uh, libertarians out there somewhere. Um, all right, well, we'll move on to the next issue. Uh, free speech and universities is in the, in the spotlight again. Uh, white supremacist material being disputed, distributed at, um, at the University of Auckland. You've got TERFs uh, at Massey uh, and suppression of a book um, which we talked about um, by the excellent um, Professor Jim Flynn. Um, John, why are we, you know, why are we debating free speech? What's the chat? Well, it's really internationally, um, especially in Western countries such as in Europe and in America, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, um, free speech has become a central issue of our time. Um, and, and really, when we look at the polarisation here, it's more often than not the left and liberal left that are arguing uh, for a crackdown on, on hate speech or alleged hate speech. And at the moment, it tends to be people on the political right uh, that, that argue for um, free speech. Um, part of it comes down to uh, campaigns around um, um, oppression and subjugation so, uh, so a lot of the big social movements at the moment in the West are based around identity issues to do with sexuality, to do with gender, to do with race um, etc and the idea is that part of um, these campaigns uh, to, to fight against um, oppression of, of, of various minority groups is that that needs to be lined up with a battle against hate speech. Um, and, and especially when we're in a time where there has been a rise in, in, in the far right, um, in uh, so-called alt-right or alt-light or populist nationalism, and, and even with, of course, with Donald Trump um, uh, um, um, pushing out sort of uh, racist, toxic statements, say, against Mexicans or against transgender people or against Muslims. So... Because um, politics has become more polarised, and because, especially because you've got the rise of radicalism, um, there is this, this debate that um, 
free speech is really a justification for hate speech and the hate speech is linked to actual violence and subjugation of, of various um, uh, marginalised groups. The counter, what, what is interesting is that traditionally it was, it was the other way around. It was the political left and liberals that mm. argue for free speech and political freedom. It tended to be the political right, whether conservatives or nationalists or, of course, um, with the fascist movement that, that clamped down on um, political freedom and free speech. Um, yeah, so it's an ongoing issue, and we're seeing that in New Zealand uh, right now with the case in Auckland uh, with um, distribution of white nationalist uh, information on campus. Um, and we're seeing it with a, a, a conference, a radical feminist conference that's going to be hosted at Massey in Wellington. Um, and, and that's highly controversial because the people who are seen, uh, who are going to be in that conference, are seen as being um, anti-transgender by some people or pro-woman by others. And then, of course, uh, we've got the case of Jim Flint here in Dunedin, um, who was publishing a book on free speech uh, and arguing that universities are increasingly censorious um, institutions throughout the West and uh, the publishing house that was going to publish his book has now declined to publish his book. Yeah, that's a shame. Um, and of course, uh, another one with Dunedin, you've got a current um, mayoral candidate uh, who is still going through a court case, I think, in Auckland uh, around the two Canadians that were coming over um, to to talk, and 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 they got disrupted by. Um, um, I think they might be taking the mayor to to court. Yeah, uh, for, for golf. that was in the news last week, I believe. Uh, this is Malcolm Moncrief Spittle, is mm. the uh, mayoral candidate who was the the uh, complainant in that case, and uh, you know he t- went there with a group uh, against uh, Phil Goff, mm. essentially, who uh, uh, who they said st- stopped uh, the uh, Laura Southern and uh, Stephen Molyneux from speaking. These two Canadian speakers. Now the court ruled last week essentially that they didn't have. Uh, the ability to rule on it because the decision was made by a council-controlled organisation. John, maybe you've got more on that? Um, Well, yeah, just going back to that issue of Stephen Molyneux and Loris, uh, anyone who who, um, can't remember who they were or don't know about the issue, these are two uh, allegedly um, alt-right intellectuals from Canada who came and spoke at New Zealand uh, were denied... uh, um, use of council buildings in Auckland uh, and then uh, the venue that was going to host them after um, a very vocal protest um, uh, declined um, uh, Stephen Molyneux and Lawrence Southern actually speaking at that at that venue. Uh, so again this points to uh, should people who some of us feel hold toxic ideas, racist ideas, uh, sh- should they be no platformed? And, and this term no platform means that certain people's views are so toxic and so dangerous and linked to uh, uh, directly or indirectly to, to violent acts against subjugated people that these people's right to free speech should be suppressed if not banned. Um, 
the counter-argument to that, you know, with the likes of Stephen Molyneux and Lauren Southern, is that the best way to expose such people is, is to actually um, use more free speech, to actually counter the arguments and, and to come up with strong debates to critique them. Uh, if we don't do that then, uh, and just ban them, then those ideas might be uh, um, uh, not given a, a public platform, but are still... Uh, easily available for people to access through various parts of the internet, for example, um, and, 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 and those ideas aren't necessarily challenged then if we just ban these people. Yeah, yeah, you're stymieing the debate if you don't allow people to talk, and then, um, like you said, you can easily find them online, plus you're giving them an even higher platform by banning them um, and allowing um, their material to be read freely with, without um, challenging the ideas, as you said. Um, right, let's quickly move on to the Iraqi protests, uh, mass protests in Iraq, um, with uh, 100 or so dead and thousands more injured. Um, what are the protests about, Jeffrey? Well, there is a short-term cause to the protests. Uh, you've had a well-respected member of the military who was seen as a hero for leading the fight against ISIS. He's been sacked. Uh, and he was seen by Iraqis as one of the good guys uh, who was not corrupt. And that's really the, the real long-term cause, is the you know, rampant corruption in the Iraqi government and the woeful prospects for ordinary Iraqis uh, 16 years after the US invasion. You've had now a whole generation of, of Iraqis who've grown up after the war back in 2003, mm. and they've got no memories of Saddam Hussein. What they see is a succession of governments uh, who are corrupt, who are bringing uh, no opportunities. Uh, you've got mass unemployment. One in uh, five Iraqis, or young Iraqis, is unemployed and uh, very poor economic opportunities. And that's despite the security situation improving a lot after the defeat of ISIS uh, there uh, completely last year. Um, or even two years ago. So uh, oil uh, production is actually at record highs now. Mm. We're up to about 5 million uh, barrels a, uh, a day being produced, which is huge. And, um, you know, the, the, the issue is you've got these huge protests uh, that are happening, which are very much reminiscent of the, of the Arab Spring that you saw in other countries like Egypt, like Tunisia, but never really got to, to Iraq. Um, and so... Uh, these protests are not uh, sectarian, which has been the case in the past, in the last uh, 15 years in Iraq, that you've had protests from the uh, from the Sunni minority. In fact, ISIS was a Sunni-led group, mm. um, and they were essentially unhappy with the way that they were being treated uh, by the new Shiite rulers. So, it's all a complicated situation, but you know, it comes down to basic economics. Uh, these people have not got jobs, they've not got money, they're hungry, and they're out protesting uh, on the streets, on the bridges in, in uh, central Baghdad and in other cities throughout Iraq. And the military staged uh, and the government staged quite a crackdown against these protesters, uh, including firing live ammunition, uh, which is where you get 100 deaths and 4,000 4, wounded as well. Mm. So um, it's a very sad situation. Um, and it looks like we will develop further. This started only in the past week, so still at the beginning of, of this. But really, it's against the whole political establishment, establishment uh, and uh, pretty much anyone who's in government is a target. Yeah, and this is an establishment that was put in place by the Americans, right? Is it still? Are we still seeing those people in power? Well, and governments changed hands. There was a transition of power last year, about a year ago, and they, they promised that things would get better. Now ISIS has been defeated. It's actually quite a broad coalition between 
uh, Shiites and Sunnis, Muqtada um, al-Sada, who's one of the leading Shiite clerics, uh, he united with uh, other Sunni groups, and it's quite an unusual wow. coalition, mm. right? Uh, and others are involved, Kurds are involved in the government. So it's actually fairly unified government. And I think that's the protesters' point, is that, you know, you, you, you're all incompetent and you're all just into uh, making money uh, for yourselves. Uh, and I read one report which you know said there's an Iraqi joke that you know billionaires start at zero except in Iraq where they started in 2003. So <laughs> you've had this you know um, you know kleptocracy at the top. Uh, these elites who've um, made a lot of money uh, over the last 15 years amidst the, amidst the chaos, taken the money for themselves, siphoned it off. But uh, young people, you know, not seeing any opportunities. Uh, and you know one of the problems is that the oil industry doesn't really uh, require many workers, and the workers it does uh, are typically quite highly skilled, and a lot of them have, have been foreigners. So you know the ordinary Iraqis are not really getting opportunities in the oil sector, despite uh, it really recovering, uh, and they're not seeing any of the oil wealth either. Yeah, there's no flow down uh, into job creation from that money, um, which is probably still just royalties anyway because I can't imagine that any Iraqi state-owned companies actually control any of the oil. Well, I mean, you know, the, the ownership's complex structure, but, um, you know, you are seeing a lot of foreign companies you know, benefiting from it. But it, it seems that the protests are targeting mainly their own uh, mm. leadership. And this yeah. is not so much against the uh, against uh, you know, foreign powers. This is, you know, a homegrown protest against the... The, the, those in power. Yeah, and uh, and they obviously don't want to leave power. Well, hopefully, um, there'll be some developments, uh, some good developments for the people of Iraq so who so. have been through um, hell on earth essentially for the last for, for a long time, this took the last um, fifty years. Um, all right, um, Jeffrey, John, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us this morning. We'll talk again next week. Thanks. For sure. Thanks very much. This was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.